You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Crystal. And I'm Nancy. And we are the co-hosts of this program. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking via Zoom with Adrienne Mayer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. Welcome, Adrienne. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Adrienne, we're so excited that you're with us today. We're going to introduce you to our listeners. Um, Adrian, you are known as a folklorist and a historian of ancient science who investigates natural knowledge contained in pre-scientific myths and oral traditions. You've been a research scholar at the Stanford Classics Department, and your work has been featured on NPR and BBC and the History Channel, the New York Times, the Smithsonian, and National Geographic. In 2018 and 19, you were the Bergruen, I don't know how to say that, Adrian, um, <laughs> Bergruen. Bergruen, I got it. Bergruen <laughs> yes. Fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. You've written a book on pre-Darwinian fossil traditions in classical antiquity and in Native America, which has also opened up a new field within geomythology. That's fascinating. And your book on the origins of biological weapons, The Poison King, The Life and Legend of Mithridates, Rome's Deadliest Enemy, uncovered the ancient roots of biochemical warfare. However, Adrian, it is your 2014 book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of the Warrior Women Across the Ancient World, that we are going to focus on today. With the new Wonder Woman movie coming out this past December, it made us collectively think about Amazon warriors again. And I say again because I grew up watching Wonder Woman on television with Diane Carter and her lasso and invisible plane and all those wonderful things that she had. Um, but now another generation has been introduced to Wonder Woman through the new Warner Brothers movies. And I haven't yet watched the newest movie, but I did watch the first one. And it shows this island populated by powerful female characters in a woman-only warrior society. And they have great costumes, I they, have to say. They, they look really buff and awesome. Yeah, um, they so, sure do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll probably come back around to, to that imagery. Um, but your 2014 book, as we've said, has quite a provocative title. And you look closely in that book at this mythological status of warrior women throughout history. You also take a deep dive into all of the possible evidence of the existence of warrior women or Amazons in particular in the past. And what I love about this work of yours is that I'm trained as an anthropologist, and in America that means we take a four-field approach 
So in your book, I feel like you very much take this four field approach, though you're coming not necessarily trained in anthropology. I see a lot of anthropology as well as history in there. So you have biological evidence, archaeological evidence, linguistic evidence, um, cultural ethnographies, examples of other women, as well as sort of ethno histories and then deeper histories. So I love that incredible amount of, of investigation and research and data you've marshaled together and put all together in this book. But I, I like to often start our interviews with this question about why you became interested in our topic today. This is a question that has remained persistent you know, for over 2,000 years in various parts of the world. But at somewhere along the line, it must have become a particular interest to you. So Amazons, are they real? Are they mythic? How did that become the focus of your research? Well, um, I guess the Amazons of myth really appealed to me first because of the exciting stories and just, uh, as you say, the way they were depicted in antiquity as uh, beautiful, athletic, uh, active women, fierce warrior women. They were the equals of, of men. And then as my research got deeper, um, it, um, it seemed to me that classical historians were probably misinterpreting the myth. It, it, it was uh, kind of incredible to me that, that all the classical historians claimed that, that uh, Amazons were, were not based in reality at all. They, they thought that the Greek imagination alone summoned Amazons into existence uh, just so they could be killed off by, by Greek male heroes. Uh, they actually wrote things like the only good Amazon is a dead one or that they only exist in myth to be defeated and that um, that heroic warrior status would be impossible for women. And I just felt that that couldn't be true. So I, I wanted to delve deeper into what could be uh, some sort of basis in, in history and reality for the myth of these fierce warrior women. So Adrian, when you say that there was this idea among classical historians that this was a a myth and couldn't be true, do you know how far back does that go? Just sort of past the Greeks who were really talking about this, when do we start seeing, I'm assuming, you know, Western classical historians really come to be a type of scholar in and of themselves. And at what point, what century, you know, is it the 18th century, 19th, 17th, when do they start doubting that there is any reality at all behind these stories of Amazons? Well, um, first of all, one thing that I found out that really amazed me was that in antiquity, uh, serious historians from antiquity like Herodotus, Strabo, Pausanias and even Plato uh, believed that Amazons had at least once existed. And then uh, slowly as the Greeks began to make contact with Scythian nomads who lived uh, around the Black Sea area and then all the way to Mongolia and even to China across the, across the steppes, um, they began to associate their Amazons in mythology with these step nomad women's lives. And so we have people like Plato who says, well, we have two examples of strong women. We have the Amazons of myth, and then we have the Scythian women of the steppes. So he's writing in the 
in the fourth century BC. So even then they knew that there was some connection between real peoples that, that lived at the same time they did, but in sort of exotic Eastern lands and their mythology. We'll never know which came first, of course. Um, you could have stories about strong women uh, before coming in contact with real women from the, from the steppe cultures. After all, the Greeks had uh, their, their, top goddesses, Athena and Artemis, mm -hmm. goddess of war and the goddess of hunting. They're both women. So they, they're, they're primed to, th to think of women this way, just not proper Greek women. So um, I found a, um, some evidence in the 1700s of a scholar um, who, uh, from France who tried to prove the reality of Amazons. Um, but it just seems that in the past, Modern, in the modern period of classical scholarship, they wanted to, and it was mostly male scholars, of course, who right. wanted to see this, this whole uh, world of, of fierce women as just, uh, just a fantasy. And it's, it's true that all the Amazons are defeated by Greek heroes in the myths, but these are Greek stories. Of course, they're going, they're going to uh, want to hear stories about their heroes, uh, killing off these foreign women, uh, that happens in all the myths. All Greek heroes overcome their enemies, right? But the cool thing about Amazons is that they were even described by Homer as the equals of men in courage and battle skills. So you don't win any honors if you're fighting someone who's much weaker than you. That's why they had to elevate the Amazons to such strong, formidable, powerful women so that it would be quite a feat if you could face this daunting threat and overcome them. So Amazons are always killed by Greek heroes in myths, but um, but every Amazon warrior is thought of as, she's as brave and as noble as the hero that she's fighting. And the Greece, Greek vase paintings of the battles with Amazons, I notice they're filled with suspense. So you see the Amazons fighting and dying courageously, and some of them are even getting the best of the Greek warriors. Mm -hmm. So combat with Amazons required a fair match for, for there to be honor for the, for the ultimate Greek victor. Yeah, I, I find this fascinating because um, when I, I teach a class um, it, on archaeological mysteries and, and myths about the past, um, it's called actually mysteries of the past. You know, we talk about Atlantis as being one of these myths that there is no evidence for, archaeological evidence. And it's it's even historically not written about at the time. By Plato, it's used as a metaphor. It's, he's not really saying anything. So it's so interesting to hear that that Amazons, though I think it lives in our popular imagine in the, imagination in the same way, there's really no evidence for Atlantis being real. And, and even way back in classical history, we don't, we don't see those... Uh, Greek scholars talking about it as if it was necessarily real. But then that's very different among what you said about Plato and, and Herodotus. Um, and then how interesting in the 1800s and 1700s we have in the in the modern scholarship, we have Atlantis being revived as this very real thing and, and Amazons being completely um, shrugged aside as being nothing but Greek myth. They're sort of inversions of each other in, in that way. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's funny how... Um, uh, 
it, it's funny how how fads come and go uh, with how, how to deal with with um, mythology, legend, and folklore. Um, so the according to the Greeks, the Amazons were barbarian archers on horseback who ra- roamed that vast territory that I just mentioned, Scythia, which stretched from the Black Sea to Mongolia. And um, as I say, the modern scholars tend to assume that the Amazons were just a purely Greek invention. Uh, but we now know that the, thanks to archaeology, and as you mentioned, some anthropology and comparative uh, ethnography, um, we know that the images and ideas of Amazons in antiquity were strongly influenced by the reality of these uh, um, horse riding archer cultures of the of the steppes. Right, right. Can we um, just have a, a quick and, and shallow dive into linguistics and ask you a little bit about the word Amazon and where that originated? Yes, um, a- Amazon was a puzzling word uh, even to the ancient Greeks because it's actually not an ancient Greek word. They borrowed it from somewhere. But the Greeks were very patriotic and nationalistic, and they didn't like to admit that they borrowed words from other cultures. And <laughs> so there was a historian, Hellonicus, from the 5th century BC, Greek historian, um, who attempted to create a, a Greek derivation or, or origin for the word Amazon. And he claimed that it, it's, it does, in fact, sound a little bit like the ancient Greek word for without and breast. Uh, mm-hmm. If you add an A to mazos, it would sound like without breast. So he claimed that it meant that they were without breast. And if you say that, that, that demands a story, right? You don't just move on from that. And so right, yeah, the, right. the idea um, came up that uh, um, somehow the Amazons must have removed one breast. And why would they do that? Well, it must be so that they could draw their bows and shoot arrows um, and that uh, they could hurl spears, otherwise uh, their, their bosoms would get in the way. Well, anyone who's ever observed archery uh, by women or practiced it themselves or watched the Hunger Games or even the <laughs> Wonder Woman um, movies knows that breasts are no hindrance to drawing a bow or hurling a spear. Right, right. And even in antiquity, this yeah, idea right. was mocked. <laughs> Easily uh, do no it way. without <laughs> removing a breast. Right, <laughs> yes. And Goodness. yet, you know, if you ask anyone about Amazons, though, if they don't know anything about Amazons, that's the one thing. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just, I think we've talked about that on this podcast at least three times. <laughs> In a whole lot of different contexts, but you know that is that 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 just comes up again and again and again. So I'm glad you yeah. got us back to the original. Yeah, um, just you know. we're going to leave that behind. That yeah. is not a thing. That is <laughs> that not from? what they did, yeah. and that's not well, the origins of the word either. Is what it sounds like you're getting exactly. At. That's yeah. right. It's um, he ma- he made up this origin for the for the non Greek word, and immediately other uh, writers. Um, disputed that and and said that it must mean something else. Some thought it meant not grain-fed, that these were nomads, so they didn't have bread. Um, another uh, suggested that it could mean that the uh, Amazons were not breastfed because these were busy working mothers who didn't have time to nurse their children <laughs> and they fed their babies on mare's milk, which is partially true. They did feed their babies fermented uh, 
uh, mare's milk. Um, so there were all these other ideas of what the word might mean. Huh. And we don't know exactly where the word comes from. There are, there are several other modern theories for where the word Amazon comes from. Um, there's a Caucasian word uh, for a, a warrior queen that sounds a bit like Amazon, but I think the most persuasive one that I've heard uh, is that it was an ancient Persian or ir Iranian word simply meaning warrior. Hmm. Uh, Hamaz. Okay. Best explanation. We'll, we'll never know for sure. Right. 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 Huh. That, well, that's really interesting to get back to that, to that beginning and to, to better understand that. So like Nancy said, um, a few minutes ago, she just loved how you overlapped history and archaeology and mythology and biology and brought all these things into the book and um, really explained the origins of the Amazons through the archaeology. So can you talk a little bit about an archaeological site or archaeological evidence that really stood out to you as you were writing this book and maybe use one of the examples that you talked about in the book um, to better explain this archaeological evidence that is kind of the basis for, for your book and what you were proposing? Right. Um, it wasn't until uh, the emergence of bioarchaeology and DNA uh, studies that archaeologists really had the ability to prove that some uh, skeletons buried with weapons on the steps uh, belong to women. And we can credit, uh, I think it's um, Janine Davis Kimball, archaeologist, uh, worked out of Berkeley, who first had a hunch that some of these graves might have been female. And she in fact, went to Kazakhstan and was excavating um, the tombs of Scythian uh, peoples, and all, they were all buried with lots of gold and, and weapons, bows and arrows and uh, quivers and spears, things like that. And she is the first to uh, apply DNA uh, to the bones. Until she did that, archaeologists just as a matter of course, assume that if they found a skeleton buried with tools, implements, or weapons, it had to belong to a male. And that was just assumed. And in fact, that's, that was assumed until very recently, and there are probably still uh, archaeologists who are digging up skeletons and they find weapons, and immediately the first thought is, this is a male warrior. And so it was, uh, it was her work, uh, Davis Kimball's work, that really grabbed my attention and convinced me to write this book. And I have a color photo of, of uh, one of her striking discoveries of a young Scythian girl um, buried with her uh, um, quiver full of arrows and a large sword or dagger uh, next to her. Uh, and I just found the image, that photograph from 1992, very poignant and arresting. Um, so that's, I, I think that was uh, one of the archaeological sites that really stood out to me when I was writing the book. Um, and then since, I, since my book came out, there have been so many more discoveries because archaeologists are now vigilant to the fact that uh, the DNA is going to show you whether these are male or female. And I think there have been more than a thousand 
excavations of Scythian graves from antiquity across the steppes, most of them in Ukraine and then Central Asia, Kazakhstan, um, and Tuva Republic and Mongolia. Uh, more than 300 have now been identified as female warriors rather than just uh, assuming that they were male. We can now prove with DNA that they were female. Wow, that's amazing. You know, going back, they probably, once they realized that, they just went, went back to all those collections and, and re-looked at every single burial to, you know, to see. And, and I think it's just fascinating that they found that a lot of those were women. Uh, do you know if there were, um, in some of these burials, if they're, you know, when they were looking at the burials, are there women buried with um, things that would be obviously a woman's women's tools, and so was that the way they were kind of judging that you know these these women were buried with spindles and and those sorts of things versus the the spears and the shields and those other more manly things. So can you talk a little bit about that kind of the differences in these burials? That's a good question because that that is in fact the kind of assumptions that the uh, that the archaeologists were making. Uh, was based on the grave goods, um, and they just assumed that if there were uh, tools or weapons, that it it would belong to uh, male, and if there were pigments and needles, okay. um, it must belong or mirrors, it must right. belong to females. Uh, they hadn't um, excavated enough Scythian tombs to realize that every boy and girl, man and woman, was buried with tools. Uh, pigments, awls and needles, um, jewelry, and mirrors. Everyone had these uh, these items. They mm. they weren't uh, they weren't distinguishing it, the, these grave goods weren't distinguishing whether whether the uh, person who was buried was male or female or young or old even. So um, I think that that assumption has just been thrown out the window. There's a very yeah. interesting. Um, discovery, maybe you've heard of it, it just happened a couple months ago uh, uh, in a, a hunter-gatherer sites in Peru, South America. Archaeologists there had always assumed, and we, we just have this embedded in our consciousness, that hunter-gatherers means the men were hunting, the women were gathering, right? right. Um, we just think of the, these uh, hunter-gatherers as divided in their tasks. And they just found in Peru several graves of hunter-gatherer people from 9,000 years ago, I think it is, and several of them, they finally did the DNA testing, several of them turned out to be uh, women who were buried with big game hunting kits. Um, Wow. The the kinds of weapons that you would use and trophies of of large game. So it wasn't just the man hunting. It was whoever was the best hunter. Obviously makes sense, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think, I think we have to dive into this a little more because a lot of people have questions about it. So I think there's a lot of assumptions that have been made traditionally based on those distinctions. And um, I want to back up just a little bit talking about these tombs because I think it's um, important to kind of paint a picture for people listening. So um, can you talk a little bit about it, describe the Kurgans, the actual burial sites? Because this is what we mostly get on the steppes in terms of archaeological remains of steppe cultures. Right. The, um, the Scythians buried their, their dead in um, 
kurgans, which are, are mounds, and the steps are just dotted with these mounds. Now, some of them have, were looted, uh, and they were looted even in antiquity. So the Scythians had um, of antiquity uh, figured out and devised uh, t- very complicated uh, structures underneath these mounds that would discourage people from looting. Herodotus, the Greek writer, actually interviewed Scythians and and maybe even saw some of their uh, kurgans while they're being built and talks about the the structure and the way they were built. It took a lot of people. They would come together seasonally to bury their dead. So there'd be a lot of people uh, to haul the timbers and build these structures underground under the under the kurgans and there have even been uh archaeologists have found uh looters that uh attempted in antiquity to steal some of the fabulous gold treasure that was buried with scythians uh crushed by the booby-trapped structures oh, inside oh, wow. these kurgans so um they were really worried about being looted um and we now know why they, they buried huge treasures of of gold they had a lot of gold um and they the burials sometimes uh sometimes only have one person sometimes they have several people sometimes mm-hmm. they have people who have been buried serially in the in these graves so um the archaeology is very painstaking mm-hmm. um because they I, have added people to the kurgan in some cases and in other yeah. cases multiple people are placed in at the same time and sometimes um, animals are also placed in in that one case you talk about where six horses were slaughtered sometimes there's dogs or other things as well so these are really elaborate structures and as you say they contain and hold a tremendous amount of not only gold and amazing objects but they they hold um, items that have then been imported from sort of all over the steppes and from the far east and from the greek world and sort of all over yes Yes, they, um, I, I just think there was a lot more trade and travel than people have realized uh, until until I really start looking at the grave goods. I think there was an ancient Egyptian bead was found in a, a Scythian grave in Siberia. Um, various wow. Roman coins, Greek objects are found. Um, and you mentioned the horses, and that's another, it's a really poignant, poignant, uh, you wouldn't really call it grave goods, but a uh, co-burial of of the horses apparently uh when someone of of great note was being buried um people would sacrifice horses and they they found two types of horses buried with uh scythians either as sacrifices or their own horses that were killed in battle perhaps um there are two kinds and the two kinds are also shown in greek vase paintings so that you've got the um uh small sort of shaggy sturdy ponies from uh from the northern climates and then you've got these tall akalteki type horses that are very tall and thin and lean built for speed and endurance in hot dry climates and the the scythians had both of those types of horses and i find it fascinating that the greek vase painters somehow knew this right. and they paint yeah. both types of horses 
uh, in their vase paintings. And then the archaeologists find both types of horses. They're doing a lot of DNA wow. studies now with the horses to see if that's they can fascinating to see those out. repetitions. And they probably used those horses in different ways, I imagine, maybe some Absolutely. better for pulling carts. I mean, apparently yeah. these step cultures didn't really get going until not only did you have the wheel, but you had the axle. And once you could then move large distances between yes. those water sources that were so spread out, that's when you, you start to really see these, these cultures flourish. So I want to dive in a little deeper because this stuff is so fascinating, I think, what we're, what we're getting out of the burials. And, and some people will say, um, as Crystal said, you know, you know, the question was, are all women buried with these things? And, and at, in many burials, we find women who are not buried with armor or daggers, or these accoutrements uh, that we would associate with warriors, um, previously thought to be men, but or Amazons. And so even if we know these are women through DNA or other osteological indicators on the pelvis or the brain, how do we know they were actually engaging uh, in warlike activities in life? How do we know they weren't just buried with these things because they were the holder of it after their husband had died or something like that. What are some of the well, biological markers that indicate they may have actually been engaged in warfare as warriors? Well, uh, many of them uh, actually have evidence of, uh, first of all, of, of riding horses for their entire life. Some of them are bow-legged, um, uh, and they many of them have arthritis uh, from the harsh lifestyle and probably riding a lot of horses. Um, some of them have... Um, breaks that you would get from riding from uh, uh, being thrown from a horse but there are also battle injuries a lot of evidence of of battle injuries and i i tried to illustrate some of those in my book uh, yeah yeah with um uh photos taken by archaeologists of of the actual um wound battle wounds uh there were you know uh, slashed ribs um a lot. They carried a lot of. Uh, they used battle axes with point uh, with a pointed end, um, and there are lots of battle axe wounds uh, on heads and other parts of the body. Some of the uh, women warriors have arrows embedded in, in their, their bones, bones uh, yeah. still. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is that bioarchaeologists can tell a lot from the uh, the circumstances of the wound or the. Or, or the death from the wound. Some of the wounds, uh, head wounds from these pointed battle axes on some female uh, skeletons buried with weapons and horses had already begun to heal. So they were living with, with these wounds uh, and they were beginning to heal and wow. then died of other wounds that, that um, the archaeologists can, can tell which came first. Bioarchaeologists can also tell what the battle was like or what the circumstances were like. They can tell whether someone received a wound while they were on foot or on an elevated uh, uh, place or on horseback, whether they were in motion, whether they were facing their opponent, whether they tried to fend off the the blows. Uh, all, All kinds of things about the circumstances of the wound can be discerned by bioarchaeologists it's really fascinating it's amazing you know and those those photos you have in the book of those wounds they're they're not gruesome because they're just the skeletal remains but you can imagine how gruesome they would be in real life and it's pretty pretty rough you know so those women were tough they were taking these wounds and then like you said 
living and some of them were healing before then they were, you know, cut down in battle later on. So pretty okay. amazing. Right. Um, we're going to take a quick station break and then I want to talk about a, a couple of gruesome and less gruesome things after we get back. (laughs) You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM, Bozeman, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Adrienne Mayer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. So Adrienne, a couple of things that stood out to me that were fascinating also in in this section of sort of showing that the women were not just buried with perhaps a male relations goods were um, that there were many um, much damage to the left forearms where you would be holding a shield or blocking some sort of attack um, and that they predominance suggesting what the right hands, right handedness in wielding swords or other weapons, and then using sort of the left hand for defense, which we we often see that depicted too in some of the scenes, but the bioarchaeologists see that on the bodies. And then um, the fact that some of the knuckles on the the bow string hand from pulling back the bow show that they were enlarged in repeated use, because in other cultures we get these horrible instances of um, arthritis and other damage on the body showing that women were spent tremendous amount of time kneeled over, toes tucked under, grinding for hours every day. So you see it in the toe and the lower back and the knees. And here with these these women, these Scythian women, you're seeing in their fingers the the bow pulling, which I thought was, was very convincing and fascinating. I don't know how many have that or if they even have all those finger bones but in some cases they do and then in one section you also mentioned that there were in cases where blades or swords or daggers were found in the graves the blade length was the same as the blade length as those found in male burials but the handle that was being held would be smaller a little bit, sort of as if a woman's hand might be holding it. So um, just sort of fascinating little aspects. But I want to also ask about the fact that some of these female burials, um, they're buried, there's some evidence for younger women too, as young as 10, but also there's women who are buried with children and infants. And sort of what that picture tells us about um, a woman warrior dying and perhaps being buried with her child. Um, yes. What are your thoughts um, on that? Or how I, is that I interpreted? Know, yeah. I don't know what the, uh, how to parse out the chronology for, for those kind of burials, but it was thought that uh, in the past that uh, surely if, even if young women were sort of the active warriors that uh, mothers and older women would not be, fighting but i think this uh what you just mentioned the evidence from the graves that show women buried with children or even infants uh does show and weapons and their horses uh does show that uh women of childbearing age and and mothers and older women were in fact fighters uh the really recent um discovery in uh, the Ukraine, a Russian discovery it was just in there quite a bit in the news in right. in December mm-hmm. about f- four women buried together mm. 
uh, with weapons and horse equipment, yes. and they represented three generations. Um, this was found by an uh, archaeologist team uh, led by Valery Juliev, uh, a uh, Russian archaeologist. Um, and this, this discovery got a lot of um, media coverage because it, it, it represented three generations of women in that grave, but it really adds to the body of archaeological evidence that that his team had already found. Had already found at least a dozen other uh, graves of several women of different ages buried together. But this most recent one, the, the four women buried together, showing three generations. The oldest woman was between forty-five and fifty years old, so that means uh, there were active warriors up to that age. Um, and then a very young warrior woman who was between 12 and 13, and the other two were mid-20s to 30s. So it's a, it's a really an, a, an amazing discovery because it shows women of all ages active warriors um, and that they could all potentially participate in battle alongside the men. And, and, and they would have been having their, their children fairly young then, which is what we would often expect um, in antiquity compared to today. Um, well, it's interesting that um, that's an interesting point, question, because we um, we know that Herodotus said that uh, among the Scythians that the, um, the girls did not marry until they had killed a man in battle. And that's someone, some, somewhat, sometimes taken by uh, classical historians of the past as just a, uh, a ludic- ludicrous thing to say, but it, that's not that uh, that's not that unusual for nomad warrior culture that you have to prove yourself to the tribe before right. you're allowed to uh, start a family. Right. And so I, I I think that happens. I'm not an arche- I'm not an uh, anthropologist, but I think you can um, probably see that in other. Uh, warrior cultures uh, that the the youth have to have to prove themselves somehow so that that's not really a ridiculous thing so so right, maybe a lot maybe of they are waiting a little bit until right. they have I, it also makes me think of one other thing aside from perhaps if they are you know intergenerational in one family in that case not only were they having children at a fairly young age and continue to participate but did you come across anything in the literature where anyone would have suggested that the Scythian cultures, in at least some of them, they were organized matrilineally, that the matriline was how you um, recorded descent. I mean, we have, you know, Malinovsky in the Trobrian Islands uh, early on as an anthropologist finding that matrilineal societies existing. And, and you know, alongside of that, there would be patrilineal ones. But we, we know from anthropology, and just wondering with these graves where there's a lot of women together, has, has it Anyone speculated about that? Um, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think. No, Scythians did not leave any writings of their own, and so about the ancient Scythians, we have to depend on uh, what the Greeks said about them, what their other neighbors said about them, the Chinese, Persians, uh, uh, and what they what they say. What can be um, gleaned from Central Asian oral traditions that are some of them only now being translated. So we don't really know, but your, your, your question is really interesting to me because when we look at Amazons, the whole world of Amazons that the, that the Greeks created, and we have 
more than 200 names of ancient Amazons have survived uh, in ancient Greek literature. So you can just imagine there was a story about each one of those women um, whose names we have. And the Greeks imagined the Amazons, whenever they talk about Amazon uh, um, family trees, it is matrilineal. So I think that's a, that's a very suggestive um, bit of evidence from the Greek point of view about Amazons. And we know that they did model quite a bit of the Amazon story on real Scythian women. So it kind of points to uh, a positive answer to what you're asking there. It just makes me wonder, because when I've just surveyed um, teaching about uh, descent across cultures, there are several in where there there is no necessarily one male that they look to for paternity. Maybe one male will commit, but in some cultures... Um, all the men a woman may have been with, and there's no stigma, could contribute to paternity. But then the the father is sort of acknowledged as one who then makes a commitment later to to have a role. So you kind of feel like there could be a link between that and then this idea that it's a it's a an all female society, which it isn't necessarily, but it must have seemed very different from a a patrilineal culture among the Greeks. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, the Greeks, of course, were male dominate had a male dominated, settled, urban, agricultural lifestyle, which is very different from the nomadic nomadic uh, lifestyle of the Scythians, um, where uh, the women were not oppressed or expected to stay home weaving or minding children. They're they're expected to be stakeholders in the. In, in the group and be able to defend and hunt for the group. Uh, it just makes sense. It's just logical. And that's why you would teach boys and girls alike uh, to uh, ride horses and um, shoot bows and arrows and be able to hunt and raid and defend the tribe. And what you say about uh, uh, just mating practices, uh, we do, we do know that um, among the Scythians, they would, meet, uh, as I said, on a seasonal basis, not not only to bury the dead, but also to uh, celebrate um, and do uh, enact rituals, but also to um, have sex. And then once they had the children, sometimes they would send uh, children to the other tribe. Male children would go to the, uh, to the father's tribe. That's... Um, that's something that might have added to the or influenced the idea among the Greeks that there were that there were all female societies and that they somehow got rid of the boys. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, that yeah is, very interesting. interesting. So depending on the sex of the child, they might have stayed with yes. the mother or the father, and there wasn't necessarily a joining of the parents into one new. That's right. fascinating. But this is also yeah. a way of cementing alliances as right. well. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's fascinating. Well, I want to go back, um, Adrian, and talk a little bit more about those, the Greek vase paintings that you were talking about, because of course, we learn a lot about the Amazons from those vases, and the painting that was done on those vases. And in your book, you talk extensively about the tattooing tradition of Amazon women. And you we get a lot of that from those from the images on the vases. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the tattoos found on these women's bodies and what they signify and what they can tell us about the lives and traditions of these women? 
Yes, I, it's, um, I have a whole chapter on tattooing. Um, the Greeks thought of tattoos as uh, a sort of a, a shameful thing. It was only used to punish uh, criminals or to mark slaves. Mm. So they could not, um, they just couldn't wrap their head around the fact that other cultures might actually find tattoos <laughs> beautiful decorations of the body. Um, I think my parents felt that way about tattoos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm trying to learn now because I got kids and I I know know they want tattoos. So yeah. So I'm kind of like in the Amazon for Sethian perspective here. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, And so, and yet we have these vase painters who lovingly detail the tattoos of Thracian women. Those were, that was the closest, um, barbarian or non-greek group uh for the for the greeks to first come in contact with who uh they really celebrated tattooing they thought people with no tattoos were just uh boring and dull and had absolutely no status so um the vase painters actually in vases from 2500 years ago fifth century bc began showing a lot of foreign women especially thracian women with tattoos and some of them are geometric but a lot of them are deer uh little tattoos of deer or snakes um things like that so animals animal tattoos and then um i think it was uh the archaeologist soviet archaeologist sergey rudenko who was the first to find the mummified scythian bodies that were preserved naturally in the permafrost in uh, the area of uh, Pazyrek, um, just north of the Altai Mountains. He found graves that uh, he had to pour boiling water in to, uh, to melt uh, the frozen uh, dirt around these burials and then brought up um, actually mummo- naturally mummified bodies of Scythians from more than 2,000 years ago, and they were heavily tattooed. They're very famous um, uh, images of those, and actually some of the tattooed skin is is kept in the museum in St. Petersburg. Mm. You've probably seen pictures of it. It's fascinating, yeah. Um, yeah those are a lot of people are getting those Scythian tattoos now because they have found a lot of uh, female um, bodies with tattoos as well, the, not just the Ice Princess, but various other uh, burials of of women from Scythian culture with really beautiful tattoos. And that the tattoos of the Scythians are, are not usually geometric except for dots, which may have been, uh, may have been medical sort of served as agri, uh, uh, sort of like, um, acupuncture. Right. They uh, proposed that same for, for Otzi. For Otzi. Yes. Yeah. But okay. most of the, most of the tattoos are, are, animals, um, fish and animals, uh, birds, some of them real and some of them fantastic, like griffins or uh, Mm. strange bird-like creatures that combine uh, mammal and bird. And then well-known animals. And some of the deer, actually, by the antlers, you can tell that it was a a certain kind of deer that was real but has now gone extinct. So they're they're only preserved in these tattoos. Mm. One of the most fascinating uh, discoveries of tattoos that I know of um, was done at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg. The archaeologists um, Barkova and Pankova, two women, Russian archaeologists, uh, they had some of these bodies from the permafrost 
uh, from 2000 years ago or even older that looked like they had no tattoos. And they decided that uh, they would just use an infrared camera to see if if maybe there was some evidence of tattoos on the, what looked like non-tattooed bodies. And they used the infrared and all of a sudden all the stunning number of previously hidden tattoos came into vision. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so just looking a couple of different ways. Well, we've been so excited about this section that Crystal and I have decided to go out tomorrow and get matching Scythian oh, tattoos. We have, have so. we? <laughs> <laughs> I made an appointment. Okay, well. <laughs> they are, I mean, they are beautiful. They're the, really striking. They're, they're stunning. They, they are. are. They yeah. really are. And, and I love the pictures that you have in your book of those. And they're very, they're just gorgeous tattoos so you know i might consider that i don't know <laughs> we just we just where to get it that's really our right, only right. Really our only deciding point right now well it's, it's interesting some uh people have pointed uh, have speculated that the tattoos on the scythians were placed um the one the ones who don't have the young bodies that don't have very many tattoos they start in a certain place so i can't remember if it was the right or left arm upper arm that's where they start the first tattoos. Oh, so huh. that's interesting. And then they also seem to be placed over muscles so that when you oh. are moving and being active and wow. um, nice. athletic, uh, your tattoos are, are sort of moving and looking alive. I thought that was... So they're not really hiding them in, yeah. in places Under, that are unseen. Yeah. yeah, You know, that reminds me when you said that, it really reminds me of rock art. And, yeah. you know, these images are so similar to what you see on rock art. At that time, too, I think. Um, I don't know my rock art chronology very well. But, you know, the idea also about the movement that in in the in caves where rock art would be illuminated by firelight in in firelight it looks like these animals are moving and the same thing you know it's almost like an animation yeah yeah and so and so that's what made me when you said that you know the animals are moving on the skin that made me think of that same thing so yeah technology yes yeah um, there are there is a lot of scythian rock art as well it's not very well known uh but there there, there is a lot of rock art um, made in antiquity, and I think that uh, I think probably some uh, we would find that a lot of the images would be very similar. Yeah. What's interesting is that the archaeologists have have actually found tattooing kits oh, wow. uh, in in some uh, Scythian burials. Um, so they found uh, little uh, pigments and uh, the needles, but fascinating fascinating discovery is that they found stencils for tattoos oh my goodness one of the one of the warriors uh from pazaric that was found by rudenko buried with him was a stencil for one of his tattoos oh my god like if it was just his and no one else could have that i mean it's body body (laughs) painting and it goes back (laughs) so far you know it's not that big of a step um to Imagine that instead of just painting the skin, someone figured out ways to have the pigments stay, you know, permanently. I mean, in in Egypt, makeup was such a big, important thing, and people are buried with all their makeup tools, you know, and all the the everything. So it's it's just so interesting how the Greeks were so disdainful of the tattooing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We're just going to take a quick station break before we go on. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM Bozeman. 
or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Adrienne Mayer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. So Adrienne, why do you think the myths surrounding a lost tribe of warrior women has persisted into the present? What does that say about us, about our society uh, in the present today? Oh, gosh, it's just... um it's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. I mean, the Greeks interwove these these threads of fact and storytelling in their imagination. They created this wonderful panoramic world of Amazons, and it just still enchants us today. I think and you mentioned in the Warrior uh, in the um, Wonder Woman movie, the first one. That's my favorite of the two, and it's because of the depiction of the Amazons uh, in the in the first one, in the in the um, first third of the first Wonder Woman movie. As you said, they were also athletic and uh, accomplished and just fascinating to see. And the director actually used real athletes, female athletes, instead of just a bunch of extras or actresses who would pretend to be Amazons. So the, these were actually modern Amazons uh, role-playing as ancient Amazons, and they came in all colors, all sizes, all ages. It was just, uh, it was really exhilarating. So I just think that feeling is one reason that people love Amazons. Um, yeah, you know, that was what stood out to me in that in that first Wonder Woman movie as well, is that it was, it was just these really strong, powerful women. But like you said, all shapes, all sizes, all colors, it was very encompassing. So I love that. So, yes, um, and, um, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say my, um, it's the, it's the egalitarian culture yeah. of the real yes. nomads that also I think strikes a chord with a lot of people. And I think that it's just inspiring for young people to know that there was one culture where where men and women were companions and equals and that, that it, it was natural and logical for girls and women to do the same things as the men and, and rise to leadership uh, and competence in the same activities as the men. I just think that uh, is really inspiring uh, to everyone. And we can say that um, if it happened once, it could happen again. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Adrian, that was exactly where... Um, I was going to come around to, I mean, we're aware as women in our own society that the Equal Rights Amendment has yet to pass and be ratified and part of the <laughs> Constitution. And as I think one of the aspects of archaeology that always fascinated me and one of the goals of the feminist anthropology movement in the 70s and 80s was to really look and see were there other cultures and other societies um, in the present or in the past where women's gender roles were different or where there was gender parity and women and men um, had more equal status to combat this idea that it was natural because the overriding theme in our own society before then, 50s and before, was that you know it was natural for women to stay at home. This was the way things were, the Victorian era going back. We have this long history and women you know, were really looking for evidence to say, um, no, it hasn't necessarily always been this way, or it hasn't always been this way everywhere. And so therefore, if it's not inscribed in our biology, that there's the possibility for equality. 
So that is what I was curious about. If you see that this research that you've done speaks to that issue, um, and how much do you think that the evidence that there were these Scythian warrior women um, can be enlisted to sort of say that gender parity may have existed in their society? Absolutely. I think um, I think that is what's so inspiring about them. I, also, I think that I think there've always been Amazons or Amazon-like women, and just sometimes they're hidden away and sort of cryptic, and other times they come sort of blazing forth, uh, sort of like we're seeing today. Um, I I have a Facebook group uh, with more than six thousand members from around the world half men and half women um and people just seem to be really excited about finding evidence of fierce women from uh from the past and in modern times so i think that there's just this um uh sort of a struggle to find balance and harmony between men and women uh, get get past this war between the sexes. And that sort of lies at the heart of all the Amazon tales, whether, whether they're am, uh, from antiquity or uh, the Middle Ages or, or today. It's just that timeless tension and the myths uh, and then the realities of Amazons and real warrior women and then women who are independent and strong. Uh, it just uh, points to a possibility of, of egalitarian gender relationships that that I think it's a dream for everyone, whether they want to admit it or not. <laughs> that, that women had the choice is what it seems mm-hmm. like to me among the Scythians, because yeah. not all women were warriors or had to be, but just that ratio of the burials that have been discovered so far suggests that it was very that definitely they could be and that and that then yeah and that if they were their status appeared on par with any of the men so so it's right. a fascinating fascinating example and then also fascinating to see how it's been treated historically so thanks for that it's been an amazing contribution your yeah. book thank you so as we mentioned earlier you also have another book out published more recently in 2018 called gods and robots myths machines and ancient dreams of technology so can you give us a brief overview of this book adrian oh well that uh gods and robots uh Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology. Uh, I live in Silicon Valley, so I, I'm very aware of all the uh, advances in uh, AI and, and robotics. And I, it, it's uh, just seemed natural to me to see how deep are those roots. Do they go back to antiquity? And it turns out they do. Um, uh, the first robot to walk the earth was in a Greek myth uh, of a bronze giant that uh, protected the island of of Crete, and that goes that goes back to about 700 BC. That story. So, so we know that in uh, as early as Homer, or even before Homer, Greeks were able to imagine uh, robots, animated statues, and uh, even ancient versions of AI. So that that's what that book is about. Just to just to see what uh, what it was like for people to imagine making artificial life in antiquity. Uh, through through mythology. 
Uh, Adrian, you're pulling um, fascinating, amazing things out of the ancient world and looking at them with a very, very interesting, you know, contemporary cultural lens. Um, so that sounds like a great read. So it's been fascinating having you on and talking with you today. We're so grateful that you could take the time. If people would like to read uh, your book, either the Amazons or Gods and Robots, um, where could they best find them? Um, I think that... Uh- I think at Country Book Bookshelf, um, books can be ordered yeah. online now. Great, good, and good. It could be um, all all my books are available there online, and the Amazons is available in hardback, paperback, Kindle, and uh, audio. But Great. I suggest uh, hardback or paperback just to get the illustrations. They're, you yeah, really they're amazing. Yeah, better. you don't want to miss those those the yeah. photos, the illustrations, all the graphics in the book are so helpful to better understand. Well, that's good. And what about your Facebook group? Is that open to anyone who would like to join? Open to anyone. Um, yeah, it's uh, all you have to do is find Amazon's Ancient and Modern okay. on Facebook and uh, join the group. And we have, uh, we have specialists. We have uh, classical historians, uh, linguists, archaeologists, and we also have artists, um, novelists, and uh, uh, other historians, people from other groups, um, other specialties, and then ordinary people who just love the idea of strong, independent women. So mm-hmm. everyone's free to post questions. And um, the specialists I found are very generous with their with their knowledge and expertise. So um, it's a really lively group. Fantastic. Do you, do you have any tattoo artists on there that might be <laughs> helpful for I, Crystal and I? I, I, I'm sure we do. We also have lots of women who actually ride horses and shoot bows and arrows. Oh, wonderful. And, and wow. there are some who actually teach that. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worth checking out. Oh, that's and, neat. I'm going to go and join, join that yeah, right after this talk. That's great. Oh, well, thanks so much, Adrian, and thanks to all of our listeners out there for joining us today as we spoke with Adrian Meyer about her book, The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. You should definitely order a copy. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about the Dirt, dirt on, on the, the Past. past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We're a new podcast, and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>